welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and preserve and promote Texas history. That's what this podcast is all about, and we have some fun along the way. So thank you for tuning in. Before we begin, I want to thank everybody out there for the great input on the Camel episode. The last episode of Wise About Texas was on the Camel Corps. If you haven't heard that, go to wiseabouttexas.com and check it out. It's a pretty fun episode. It was a fun episode to do, and the feedback's been tremendous. But I've also had a lot of questions about the pictures that I was posting along with the episode and some of the pictures that I was tweeting and putting on the Facebook page. So let me tell you a little bit about how that episode came about. A couple of weeks before I recorded and released it, I was down in Indianola. And I took some pictures, of course, of the various places. And one of the things that I took a picture of, and I put this out there on Twitter, was the, the monument to the Camel Corps because they had landed those camels right there where I was standing in Indianola. And that gave me the idea to do the episode. Now, the Camel Corps is a great classic Texas story, one of those sort of could-only-happen-in-Texas things. So anybody that's going to write about Texas history or do any kind of Texas history work is going to talk about that Camel Corps. But... I decided to move it up the list, uh, having stood there. And then at the time that I was doing the episode and when I was Indian in Indianola, I had a West Texas dove hunt already planned for the week after I released the episode. Well, what I didn't realize was the ranch. I had never been to the ranch, uh, where we went in West Texas and it was, it borders a big bend national park. And it turns out that the great Comanche war trail went down the front driveway of that ranch. And so I, I had mentioned the war trail on the episode, and so I actually got to stand on it about five days later. And then the camel expedition that Eccles, uh, William Eccles led in 1859, and that was the one I talked about in the episode where they went several days without water and were in some trouble. They had walked those camels right through a place in Big Bend called Dog Canyon, well, one day we're taking a tour of the ranch and we walk across the fence into the park and we walk through Dog Canyon. And so we were walking right where the camels had walked. So that gave me a lot of good pictures relevant to the episode. It was a total coincidence that I happened to be there right at the time. Uh, but those sorts of coincidences are, are wonderful to have and they seem to happen to me a lot. So I was really privileged to be down there right where that episode that I had happened to release that week happened. So that was a lot of fun. Well, today we're going to talk about airplanes. Now, Texans love their airplanes. The only thing better than a Texan with an airplane is if that Texan is a good friend of yours and wants to fly you around on that airplane. But most people, when you think of air travel, think of the Wright brothers as the first. But as you'll learn in this episode, that's wrong. So we're going to go back to 1865 today to get wise about Texas. But first, we're going to have to go a little further back, and we're going to talk a little bit about man's desire to fly. Notice how when you see a cool airplane or something, everybody looks up and checks it out. Everybody, you see an interesting bird, everybody's going to look up and check it out. And that has been true since the dawn of humanity. There are great tales in mythology of people that wanted to fly. You go back to the ancient Greeks, you've got the tale of Daedalus and his son Icarus. Uh, they were imprisoned by King Midas, and they built wings of feathers held together by wax, and Daedalus flew successfully, but Icarus wanted to get up and touch the sun, and he got too close, and the 
wax melted and he fell to his death. And there's a Persian story of a king named Kajkaus or something like that. I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but he attached wings to his throne and flew around to watch over and see where his enemies were. Now, I love the idea of a winged chair. I think we could all use that. And so that was that's an ancient Persian myth. Then you have Alexander the Great. He supposedly uh, starved a couple of griffins and then tied them to his chair and held meat in front of them so that they would get up and fly so he could fly around on his chair too. Well, more recently than that, and by more recently when you're doing a history podcast, I'm talking about 1485, uh, Leonardo da Vinci drew up a flying machine that would mimic a bird flapping wings. He also drew a helicopter-like device, so da Vinci had it on his mind. And the point, of course, is that man has always wanted to fly. So, you know, the the Wright brothers get credit for the first flight, and, and we'll talk about them. The Wright brothers were a couple of guys who, they were from Ohio, and they worked in a bicycle shop, and they built a glider and started to experiment with putting engines on it, and they got up in the air in 1903, December 1st, and they had gone to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina on the Outer Banks, and there's some controversy. The Europeans didn't like the idea that they were really the first, and the guy who was the secretary of the Smithsonian Institute for the longest time would not recognize them as the first, but it turns out none of them had it right. The first man to fly an airplane was in Texas. And so here's the story. Before we start, to get to the point where this gentleman flew his airplane, we've got to start in Germany in 1819. I, you know, my, as you learned from the 1900 storm episode, my mother's family is all German from Germany, immigrated here in the German immigration that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But I never learned to speak German. So I'm going to apologize to my deceased ancestors, to my mother, and to everyone who actually does speak German for the pronunciations I'm about to butcher. But we're going to start in Germany in 1819, and a man named Johann Friedrich Ernst. And he was born Christian Friedrich Dirks, but he changed his name after he had to head out of Oldenburg, Germany. And it seems that Herr Dirks had been the postal clerk in Oldenburg when he was accused by the Duke of embezzling some funds. So he like many old pioneer Texans, he took off and uh, he escaped Oldenburg and he sailed for New York and he arrived in 1829. And he arrived with his wife, Louise, and five children. And that's when he became Johann Ernst. Well, they decided to move to Missouri and they heard about Austin's colony. Now, you remember Moses Austin, who started the project, and his son, Stephen F. Austin, who finished it, were from Missouri, and this was now 1831. So in 1831, Johann Ernst decided that Austin's colony in Texas would be a good deal. And he arrived in Harrisburg in 1831, and that was the first German family in Texas and widely regarded as such. Now, there may have been someone from Germany here before, but the, we're going to recognize the Ernst as the first German family in Texas. He got a land grant in Austin's colony in the northwest portion, and he laid out the town that is now Industry, Texas. And it's in what's called in Texas sometimes the German Belt. And Mr. Ernst grew tobacco. He was the first European to roll cigars. He rolled his own cigars on his farm. And uh, there was an 1840 article that I found about praising Mr. Ernst's cigars, talking about how he was using Cuban seed 
and that the tobacco could not be meaningfully distinguished from Cuban tobacco. So you cigar lovers out there, I think it's about time we fire that industry back up, pun intended. Uh, Ernst was also a justice of the peace. He was a county commissioner in the area, and he he sent several letters back to Germany about Texas. And he began selling his lots that he had laid out in the town of industry, and that town was incorporated in 1838. Now, Germany at the time had a lot of problems. Uh, there were there had been some immigration from Germany already, due in large part to religious persecutions. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but you need to understand what the people were facing in Germany. Uh, the Lutherans and the Anabaptists were being persecuted. The Anabaptists were uh, religious folks that believed that baptism should occur later, not as an infant, but rather after you had uh, confessed your belief in Christ. And the descendants of those German Anabaptists today are the Mennonite and the Amish. And so uh, they had immigrated to New York and Pennsylvania already. The German economy was also in a shambles. There had been 16 years or so of war, the Napoleonic Wars, and the German peasants uh, were basically serfs. They were There's no way they were going to get land. Their prospects were very poor to own land. Um, the noblemen, of which there were many, there were some 300-odd little German fiefdoms uh, of various types and all ruled by these aristocrats and noblemen, and they had raised taxes to the highest taxes anyone had ever seen to try to recover at least the nobles could recover from the war. That led to, there was also a little bit of an overpopulation problem, and that led to a revolution uh, in 1848, which did not work out so well. The people that were on the wrong side of that revolution needed somewhere to go. And, of course, Texas was becoming well-known as a place to immigrate. Texas land was very fruitful and it was also very cheap and there was a ton of it Uh, so that led to a lot that led to the early uh, mass migration of germans into texas and the folks that uh, the the post-revolution folks that wanted to flee germany those that came here were called 48ers and some of the petty noblemen found themselves on the wrong side of that revolution also And they figured, look, if we can get to Texas and we can bring a bunch of people with us, we can get our status back. We can be leaders. We can get some land. We can, you know, and you have you have to believe they were thinking, hey, we're going to come over here and we're going to be a lot more prosperous than we would have been in Germany. And for the for the peasants, it was a no brainer. I mean, the only way they were going to get land and prosper was to move. And so that all added up to Texas. In the late 1830s, 21 German nobles decided to become these little German impresarios, and they formed an association called the Adelsverein, and they, that meant, that translated to Society for the Protection of German Immigrants in Texas. That was the official English name, and they decided they would come over here and bring a bunch of Germans over here, buy some land, and set up some German communities. So, and Sam Houston actually offered the Adelsverein some land, but the land that he offered them was in the Comancheria west of Austin. Now, the motives for Houston to settle that frontier probably had something to do with the capitals and the the expansion 
of the frontier toward Austin, but we'll leave that analysis for another day. Uh, the He might also have been thinking, hey, all these new colonists, they are just had all this war experience in Europe. We'll put them out there with the Comanches and see what they can do. Well, the Adelsverein decided we're not going to do that. We're not going to take that land. So they bought some land in 1843 near Round Top, which, of course, is right there next to where Ernst had settled and created the town of industry. And they bought it from a gentleman named Robert Mills. Now, Robert Mills was an interesting character, and, of course, he deserves his own episode, but he was known as the Duke of Brazoria. He was one of the richest men, probably the richest man in Texas at this time, maybe one of the richest in the country. He had grown cotton. He owned a ton of land. He was the first guy to build a cotton compress in Galveston. His partner in Galveston, by the way, was the consul from none other than Prussia. So he was in business with the Germans okay already. The consul's name was Johann Jakush. Uh, that was a little bit later, after the immigration in 1849. But the Adelsverein bought this mill's land and, near Round Top, and they named it Nassau Farm. And Nassau Farm, uh, they actually started farming, and they, they had several slaves, which was unusual for the German people, because many of these immigrants were some of the German freethinkers and were very anti-slavery. Uh, in fact, during the Civil War, supported the Union. For, for them to own slaves was somewhat unusual, but on this Nassau farm, they certainly did. And they, the Adelsverein folks that were still in Germany were trying to recruit more immigrants. So they reorganized after they got this land and were established into a joint stock company. And they were approached by two guys, Alexander Bourgeois d'Orvan and Armand Ducos. And these guys had two land grants that they needed to settle. One was on the Rio Grande, and one was in the Uvalde Frio County, Uvalde River, Frio River, Medina River area west of San Antonio. Those grants were going to require colonization. And so the Adelsvarin bought them in 1844. There was only one problem. Those grants had already expired. So they got ripped off. Um, that caused some consternation and some confusion in the Adelsverein, and so they appointed a new commissioner to sort it all out. His name was Prince Karl of Salms Braunfels, and he became the Adelsverein commissioner in Texas. He discovered that grant was void, and uh, he parted ways with those two guys, and he went to two other land grantees named Henry Fisher and Bertrand Miller. They had their grant between the Llano and Colorado Rivers northwest of Austin. Now, in the meantime, in December 1844, while the Adelsvarian officials are trying to get all this land together, a group of German immigrants arrived at Indianola. Now, at that time, Prince uh, Carl of Psalms Braunfels had decided the location of Indianola was where they would land. And I think he did that to keep keep it a little bit separate. You know, Galveston would have been the natural point, but Indianola was a little more remote. And so he picked the spot. It wasn't named Indianola at the time, but he picked the spot and he called it Karlschaffen. Some German immigrants arrived while he was trying to get this land deal done. And so he didn't have anywhere to put them. So Prince Karl himself bought two leagues of land at the Comal Springs between Carl Schaffen or Indianola, and that Fisher Miller grant on the Llano Colorado rivers. He named that for his estate in Germany and he called it New Braunfels, which of course stands today. Well, the Adelsvar Prince 
Carl of Solms Braunfels rotated off the Adelsvarin uh, commissioner post, and they got a new commissioner. The new commissioner was named John Musbach, and in 1845 he took over the Adelsvarin. He had landed in Indianola, and he had several thousand German immigrants on their way right behind him. So he knew that he needed to get them settled fast. And he wanted to build that settlement on that Fisher Miller land grant that the Adelsvarin had bought. So there was a spot on the way to that land grant where two streams met a little bit above the Perdinalis River. And he decided that would be a good waypoint for these immigrants before they got to the final spot on the Fisher Miller land grant. So he named one of the streams Barron's Creek, he named the other one Town Creek, and he laid out a town, and he laid it out like the towns in Germany on the Rhine River. There's a big main street down the middle of the town that bordered the Town Creek, or it paralleled the Town Creek. And Musbach named that town after the highest-ranking member of the Adelsvarin at the time, who was Prince Frederick of Prussia, and he called it Fredericksburg, uh, which, of course, is still there today. Now, among the first settlers in that area was a guy named Jacob Luckenbach, and he arrived at Indianola in December 1845. Now, I love, you know, one of the things historians love to do is bust other historians, and I was doing a little research on Jacob Luckenbach, and there was a source, and I honestly, I can't remember where I saw this, but um, I saw that they claimed that he had fought in the Texas Revolution and had returned back to Germany, but I don't think that's right. I looked up the passenger records, and I looked up the land records and the bounty records from the state archives, and there was a James L. Luckenbach that did, in fact, fight in the Revolution, but he was from Pennsylvania, and he was a much earlier German immigrant, uh, some of those that we discussed earlier, and so I think uh, that source was wrong. So uh, we always, being a, a historian and also a lawyer, you just love to pick fights with people, so that was if you see that on the internet, um, that was wrong. Jacob Luckenbach arrived in 1845. Now, he moves to Fredericksburg and uh, to a site on a little stream called Grape Creek, just outside town, and they called that area, that little community, the South Grape Creek Town. And eventually they got a post office, and a lady was asked to name it, and she named it after her husband, and she called it Luckenbach. And that is the Luckenbach, Texas today. Now there are competing historical markers in that area, so I'm not going to wade into that episode. We're going to we're going to do a Texas Towns episode on Luckenbach, Texas, but uh, we're not going to discuss too much of uh, who was first and who went where, but uh, l- let's just for this episode we'll say that Luckenbach was now established. Enter the subject of our flight story, Mr. Jacob Broadbeck. Jacob Broadbeck was born in 1821 in the Duchy of Württemberg, Germany. And he went to the seminary uh, to become a teacher. Now, the you know, seminaries back then, you think of a seminary today, and of course it's a, a very special training school for members of the clergy, but back then that's where you would go uh, to become educated, not necessarily to become an ordained minister. And I didn't find any evidence that he was in fact ordained, but I did find plenty of evidence that he was educated And he graduated from there and taught school, and he taught school in Germany for six years. His parents got the idea that maybe they would join the German immigration to Texas. And Jacob was very excited about that, and he definitely wanted to go to Texas. He had a brother, George, who wanted to go. 
uh, the parents started reading a little bit of the accounts that were coming back from the German immigrants. Now think about this. The German immigration pattern was from Indianola through what is now New Braunfels and up to Fredericksburg. That is right in the heart of Comanche Indian territory. So what do you think they were writing back about their experiences in Texas? Let me tell you, uh, the first few thousand German immigrants to land in Indianola, uh, only about half of them survived, if that. Uh, Yellow fever, cholera, uh, the Indians. I mean, it was a bad situation, and it was a hard trip to New Braunfels, much less Fredericksburg. And so the accounts that would be coming back would be uh, pretty scary. Well, the parents, Jacob Broadbeck's parents, started hearing about these Indians and decided that was not something they wanted to do, so they canceled their trip. They said, we're not going. Well, that wasn't good enough for Jacob and his brother. And they said, well, we are going. Uh, So he was ready to go, and he and George left Antwerp on August 25th, 1846. Now, once again, I got to tell you, just licking my chops as a lawyer and a historian, I get to bust another source. There was something on uh, on one of the documents that I saw that I think it may have been an article that talked about them uh, arriving in 1846 at Indianola. Another article talked about them arriving uh, by ship um, like in the 1850s or something like that. But I hold in my hand the passenger record of Jacob Broadbeck arriving at Indianola or arriving at Galveston, excuse me, October 22nd, 1846 on the ship element. He left Antwerp on August 25th, 1846. He landed at Galveston with his brother on October 22nd, 1846. And like all the German immigrants at the time, if they didn't stay there in the Galveston, Houston area, he would have gone. To Indianola if his intention was to go to the Adelsverein uh, land grant, the Fisher Miller land grant, which of course it was. So no doubt the accounts of him arriving in Indianola in early 1847 are probably accurate, but he did so on foot or on horseback. He did not do so in the ship. So anyway, there you go. Uh, so he goes on to uh, Indianola and then proceeds up to Fredericksburg. When he arrives in Fredericksburg, of course, he's probably, at that point, the most educated man in town, and he becomes the school teacher. He was the only, the second school teacher in Fredericksburg. He gets married to a lady named Behrens, and they had 12 children. And eventually, Jacob moved his family to a little farmstead outside Fredericksburg at South Great Creek Town, which, of course, was now called Lukenbach, and he was a school teacher in Lukenbach. He was also the county surveyor at one point. He was a county commissioner. He was a school supervisor. He moved his family later to San Antonio to be the school supervisor. And so Jacob Broadbeck was a leading citizen of the time. He was an elected official and a teacher and a supervisor. Uh, so have you ever known people like that? I mean, you know people that, and, and I know several people like this, and, and they can just fix anything. They have an inventive mind. They start talking about inventing things. My grandfather, uh, one of the German grandfathers, by the way, was sort of like that. And uh, he could fix anything, and he would design tools and machines to to and build them just kind of out of his head to... Uh, accomplish various tasks, and I've always had a lot of respect for that. Well, that was Jacob Broadbeck, a truly 
talented individual and a thinker and a visionary back then. He also, uh, in more practical pursuit, made wine, uh, which, of course, is a very valuable thing. And uh, he would make wine in these 20-gallon barrels, for, and the saloons in San Antonio would buy this Broadbeck wine. He also taught music. He had been an organist in Germany in the church, uh, so he taught music. He tuned pianos. While he was in Texas, he made toys. I read some accounts from some of his children. He would make toys for the children. One of his daughters uh, remembered that he once made a Christmas tree. He took a a broom handle or some sort of handle and punched holes in it, put branches in it, and they ended up with a great Christmas tree out of it. So he was really a talented guy and very well respected in the community. Oh, I left one more thing out. When he was back in Germany, uh, recently out of the seminary and teaching school, he had invented a self-winding watch or had worked on inventing a self-winding watch. Uh, So this guy was really... Uh, quite the inventor. He um, also ran across some sources talking about him working on an ice machine. Now, if you want to get a Texan's attention, you start talking about ice and air conditioning because that would have been critical, especially back then. I've always thought, you know, the people that settled this state back then wearing all those heavy clothes when it was just as hot as it is today, there are days I don't even want to leave my air-conditioned house Um, it's so hot. And so I can't imagine what it was like back then. So inventing an ice machine would be quite the feat. Now, Jacob didn't invent the ice machine, uh, but I looked into it a little bit uh, from the Broadback angle, and I discovered that Texas had a huge role in the development of commercial ice production. So in True Wise About Texas Style, let me digress for a minute and just tell you, there was an ice machine smuggled into San Antonio during the Civil War around the Union blockade. Well, Broadbeck was living in San Antonio at this time, so no doubt he would have heard of this situation. So I wonder if he knew about the ice machine, if he went, knowing what I know now about him and the way he thought, he would have gone over there to see the ice machine and kind of figure out how it worked. Um, And while he was there, there was also a guy named Daniel Holden uh, who improved on the ice machine that San Antonio had, and who knows, Broadbeck may have known him, may have worked with him. Uh, There were three ice producers in San Antonio by 1867, so this was a big thing. Uh, There was another, there was a German guy named Hull who invented one, a different kind of ice machine, about 1867, so Broadbeck would have known all these guys. And um, just to complete the the little ice story about Texas, back uh, in 18... In the 1870s sometime, there was the first refrigerated abattoir, which is a fancy French word for slaughterhouse, in Fulton, Texas, near the coast. Uh, The first refrigerated slaughterhouse was in Texas. And, of course, in Texas at that time, one of the biggest industries was the beef industry. So that's where that ice application would really pay off. Uh, We finally shipped beef by rail to New York from Texas in 1873, and the ability to refrigerate those rail cars was very important. In fact, one of the first ice machines that was available for that purpose was bought by Richard King of the King Ranch because that was such a big deal. If he could get a railroad and refrigerated cars, he could ship all his beef a lot faster. So it was the refrigerated rail transportation that that really had a lot to do with the death of the trail drives back in the 1870s and 80s. So 
there you go, a little history of ice in Texas. Well, let's go back to Lookenbach and Jacob Broadbeck. Broadbeck's real passion during this whole time was flight. He had long wanted to get figure out a way that man could fly. He studied the birds very closely. And this is from Broadbeck's own recollections. He, he spent a lot of time studying the mechanics of birds flying. And, of course, with his talent and kind of the visionary thinking that we already know that he possessed, he ended up building a model airplane, a small-scale model airplane, and he would fly it around in the schoolyard. Remember, he's a schoolteacher still, so he would throw it for the kids. The airplane would fly in circles. And, of course, you can imagine what those kids thought because they had never seen anything fly. You know, everybody today, we've, we've all grown up with airplanes. It's no big deal. But back then, it would have been huge. Uh, that he had made this mechanical bird, and he used to entertain the school kids with his, with his model airplane. But the one, the problem is for him to uh, develop a full-size airplane that would carry a man, he was going to need some financing. So Broadback turned to some of his friends in San Antonio, and he sold shares in his airship. And the DRT library at the uh, Alamo actually has some of these share certificates, and these share certificates were purchased, the ones that I saw were purchased by Dr. Ferdinand Herff, H-E-R-F-F, and Broadbeck would sell one share for $5, and he eventually got enough money to build his full-size airship, which is what he called it. And Broadbeck wrote later that the Civil War had impeded his progress on building this airship. So it was right after the war uh, that he was ready to fly. Uh, now, it's interesting to me that Ferdinand Herff was one of the guys that bought stock in this airplane. And, and why uh, is that surprising? Because Herff was a communist. And here's a little story for you that goes with this German immigration. There were about 40 German free thinkers uh, who were communists who believed, who came over and decided they were going to form this ideal communist society, and they called it Bettina, which was uh, located in the western part of what is now uh, Lano County, and it was on that Fisher-Miller grant, by the way. But, you know, as communist societies always do, it failed, and this one failed within a year, and it failed because there were some disputes over who was working harder uh, than others, and it probably didn't help that uh, several of the residents turned out to be lawyers, and of course we lawyers are not known to be in love with manual labor. So anyway, Herf uh, apparently saw the light on communism after that and decided to become a capitalist and buy a little bit of stock in the Broadbeck Airship Company. And now the records about Broadbeck builds this aircraft, and the records start to kind of get a little scattered about what exactly happened next, but... We do know that Broadbeck was still trying to raise a little money. He wrote an article in the Galveston News. It appeared on August the 7th, 1865, and Broadbeck wrote, I'm going to quote a couple of parts of this. Here's what Broadbeck wrote to the people. Quote, For more than 20 years I have labored to construct a machine which should enable man to use, like a bird, the atmospheric region as the medium of his travels. I studied the flight of birds, examined into the mechanical laws governing these wonderful structures, and observed the various peculiarities of the air. And so in the year 1863, I was at last able to construct a machine which, requiring comparatively little power, imitates the flight of birds. 
inasmuch as it makes use of the same peculiarities of the air and moves with the same celerity in every direction, with the wind and against it, not resembling, however, in form a bird, but being constructed like a ship, which has caused me to call it an airship. And he went on to explain that he needed some money to build this airship and that he was going to offer shares in the airship that would be repaid upon the selling of either the airship or the patent. And he was very concerned about getting a patent on this thing. And then he went on to describe exactly how he built it. So he's got the airship built. He's got some funds together. And he decided he needed to do a proof of concept and fly it for the people. So on September 20th, 1865, now there's a couple of different accounts. A lot of accounts and articles you'll read say that he flew it at Lückenbach. But digging down into Broadbeck's own writings and some of the family history that I found, I think it's pretty clear that he flew it on Ferdinand Herf's farm, which was closer to Bernie. So September 20th, 1865, everybody gets together on Ferdinand Herf's farm, and Broadbeck is going to fly this airship. And Broadbeck wrote about what happened that day, so I'm not going to try to describe it. I'm just going to let Jacob Broadbeck tell you what he did. And here's what Broadbeck wrote, quote, The day of the proposed flight, I was up bright and early to check out all the parts to see that the mechanism would work as before. By this time, my neighbors and friends had arrived to help me hoist the airship on the platform. It was tied down in such a way that all I had to do was cut it loose when when I was ready to take off. A rather large crowd gathered to watch this unusual affair. There were many military men there. After Charles Nimitz spoke, a few other well-wishers said a few kind words in my behalf, but I said a few prayers as I crawled into the aeronaut's chamber. Close quote. Now, it's interesting to me that he talks about the military people being there. You know, he was developing this ship during the Civil War, and Broadbeck was a Confederate sympathizer. Now, I mentioned earlier, many of the Germans of that area were Unionists. In fact, there's a, another episode I'm going to do on a massacre of some of the German Union sympathizers in Comfort, Texas. And so it was interesting that Broadbeck was a Confederate, and he was developing this airship during the Civil War. But he mentioned in that piece he wrote in the Galveston News that the Civil War had actually prevented him from working on the airship. So I think that's a curious situation and wonder a little bit about what's up with that. But certainly after the war, the military would have been very interested in learning whether this machine was going to fly. And something else interesting in that quote I read was a gentleman named Charles Nimitz speaking. Now, I don't know if that name sounds familiar to you, Charles Nimitz had come to Fredericksburg in 1846. He was a Texas Ranger. He was a captain in the Confederate Army, and he owned a hotel called the Nimitz Hotel in Fredericksburg. And he had a rather famous grandson. His grandson was the commander of the entire Pacific Fleet in World War II, Admiral Chester Nimitz. So Broadbeck was in very good company. Let me read what Broadbeck wrote about the actual flight. Quote, I wound up the massive coil spring and cut loose the rope as I released the lever for takeoff. The takeoff was a success, and the airship soared majestically about 50 yards over the treetops. As the coil spring unwound, suddenly something happened with the mechanism, and I was unable to rewind the spring fast enough to remain aloft. I found myself dashing towards the ground with my spirit shattered. I suffered only minor injuries, 
but my pride and joy suffered severe damage. My craft was taken back to Dr. Herf's barn where it was stored until I could rebuild it again. Close quote. Now the springs he talked about, remember he was a watchmaker in Germany. Remember he made that self-winding watch? So the, the airplane's power was provided by these springs. And in spring, there were two of them. And so the first spring he wound up, as it unwound, um, the second spring would wind the first spring. And then the pilot would, as you kept flying, rewind, manually rewind that second spring. So the pilot would rewind the second spring. And as the first spring unwound, the second spring would wind that. And that by that way, um, you could power the airplane. And that sounds pretty good, except at the point where the tension in spring A and the tension in spring B are equal. And when that happens, everything stops. And so uh, Broadbeck discovered that the hard way, the plane came out of the sky and crashed into the tree. But let's think about what just happened. Whether his springs worked really well or not, he got an airplane into the sky with him aboard that flew over the trees under its own power. That, my friends, was flight. And... There was an article in the 30s written by a guy named I.G. Waymire, and he recalls that the backers of the flight were not all that impressed with the airplane, and they decided that that was not going to be a good way to go, and they weren't going to pony up any more money to further this project. And Broadbeck himself, of course, as you can tell from the tone of his writing, was very disappointed that it didn't work as well as he had hoped. And so he probably had a little bit of a negative attitude toward it rather than realizing what he had just accomplished. And so uh, the investors sort of backed off and uh, Broadbeck wasn't able to work further on the airplane that he had successfully invented. And it just was an insurmountable barrier. Uh, he did go around the country after that to try to raise some money. For the aircraft, but it didn't work out. Now think about going, it, I read some accounts that he was up in Washington and up in places in the north. Well, this was a guy, he didn't get his disabilities removed. Confederate citizens uh, under Reconstruction were not able to vote. They were unable to do certain things. He wasn't, um, didn't have his disabilities removed legally until 1870. He's mentioned in the Galveston paper as being one of the Confederates that had uh, been successfully subject to the reconstruction process in 1870. So here he was, a former Confederate, going up north to try to sell shares in an airplane. Uh, and the, if anybody had any news of the airplane, they knew that it had only flown 50 yards and crashed. So it probably didn't sound good to him. Um, one day when he was in Michigan on a trip, uh, his blueprints were all stolen. And so at that point, uh, there was nothing more he could do. And he returned to the farm, uh, no doubt, very disappointed. Um, but he had flown. He had flown an aircraft under its own power, and he was the first one to do so. Um, now, the Wright brothers in 1903, fast forward, you know, they had an engine that was small enough for a plane in 1865. We didn't have those engines. There were some internal combustion engines that had been invented, but they were huge, and they weren't going to fit on an airplane. Uh, but when the Wright brothers made their flight, they were very low to the ground, just like Broadbeck. Uh, they controlled their airplane just like Broadbeck. 
they might have gone a tad further, but not much further uh, than Broadback. So in other words, they had pretty much copied Broadback. Now, it's amazing to me that history credits the Wright brothers, and I, I kind of do want to start a little controversy about this because this is wise about Texas and no place else, so we're going to talk about Texas. And uh, I think Broadback deserves the credit for that first flight. And to, to take it from him and to give it to somebody else, you've got to really parse your words. And uh, here's a quote from the Smithsonian uh, on the Smithsonian website about the Wright brothers. It says, on December 17, 1903, at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, the Wright flyer became the first powered, heavier-than-air machine to achieve controlled, sustained flight with a pilot aboard. Well, that's a pretty long description to say that somebody flew an airplane. Uh, because in 1865, Jacob Broadbeck had a powered, heavier-than-air machine that he achieved controlled, sustained flight with, and he, the pilot, was aboard. So according to the Smithsonian's own definition, Jacob Broadbeck flew an airplane, he was the first man to fly an airplane, and he was a Texan. Well, I really enjoyed learning about Jacob Broadbeck in this episode. He was one of those unique individuals that had just a tremendous mind. He obviously had a great work ethic to immigrate from Germany at that time was a very hard trip. And he did it with his brother. Uh, His brother, George, by the way, became a Texas Ranger and had a great career in his own right. Uh, But Jacob Broadbeck was really a visionary for his time. You know, I think about folks like that. We have our modern day equivalents, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and those sorts of tech entrepreneurs that invent products that you don't even know you need. And uh, Broadbeck was one of those guys who just thought that way. And uh, I consider him really a Texas hero. His, his, that sort of thinking is really the spirit of Texas. I think about space flight. You know, Broadbeck was the first to fly. But you fast forward in the same state, and those guys working on the Apollo missions were inventing uh, things and products that needed to go into these rockets and components, life safety, propulsion, all of these things that they were inventing on the fly. And when we, they sent those men up into space, they had no idea what would happen. And, uh, but they made it work. And that is the spirit of Texas, the spirit of innovation. And Jacob Broadbeck was one of the first. Well, now we come to the part of the show called Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places that we talked about in the episode. Industry Texas is still a town. It's on Highway 159 between Belleville and LaGrange, so you can go to Industry and see where the first German town in Texas was. There's a historical marker for the Nassau Farm that I talked about. It's at the intersection of County Road 279 and Farm to Market Road 1457, and that's east of Round Top a couple of miles. Round Top is very close to industry in the same area. So if you get on 1457 and the intersection of County Road 279, you'll see a historical marker for Nassau Farm. Well, everybody out there has heard of Lukenbach, Texas. Uh, so you can go up to Lukenbach. It's right outside Fredericksburg in the main a square of Fredericksburg is called the Market Plots. There's a bust of Jacob Broadbeck commemorating him being the first man to fly. Uh, Luckenbach is real close to Fredericksburg on Farm Road 1376. And of course, it's probably better known these days for the great music. Uh, but a little bit further down the road on 1376 is where Jacob Broadbeck lived and is buried. His grave is on the Broadbeck land 
and I believe, and I have not been up there, but I did a little research. I think you can see it. It's on Farm Road 1376 going south toward Bernie. It's on the right side of the road, a few miles south of Luckenbach. And I think the cemetery is accessible. And if any of Broadbeck's descendants hear this episode, I hope I'm not speaking out of school. Uh, but I'll post something on the Facebook page and please comment on whether you can go see Jacob Broadbeck's grave. Uh, but he is buried along with his brother George and his wife uh, on in that spot. The spot where Broadbeck took his flight, Dr. Herf's farm, still exists. And it is now called the Cibolo Nature Center. It's at 140 City Park Road in Bernie, Texas. And you can go there and see some preserved structures. And you can see the spot where Jacob Broadbeck became the first man to fly in a powered aircraft. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to the show on the website. Click one of the subscription links of your favorite platform and tell a friend to do the same. Like and share the Facebook page, and you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at WiseAboutTexas. I want to thank everybody who signed up to support the show. It does cost me some money to produce this show, and you can support the show financially at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash WiseAboutTexas. And I want to welcome your feedback on the show. I'm getting lots of great suggestions on episodes, which we're going to put on the production list. Uh, Leave a comment on the website, leave a review on iTunes, or shoot me an email, host at wiseabouttexas.com. Well, thanks again for listening, and go out and do something for Texas today. Until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.